BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Please visit SupChina.com, download our smartphone app, or subscribe to our daily email to stay on top of news from China and enjoy a growing selection of originally reported stories and videos. Make sure to check out our new SupChina Red Paper. This 25-page report features all original content on the most important news about China in 2017, from Mar-a-Lago to TPP, the 19th Party Congress, Liu Xiaobo, North Korea, Guo Wengui, AI, uh, the ongoing anti-corruption drive, Tencent's terrific year, the Paris Agreement, and much, much, much more. So uh, I'll take a look ahead at what promises to be a very eventful and momentous 2018 and remind yourself of what happened in 2017. It is a steal at just 8 bucks, $8.88. Find it at subchina.com. I'm Kaiser Guo, joining you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me, of course, from Nashville, Tennessee, is a guy who's like... He's a Wunding the Tianshai, and he goes by the name of Yumi, Jeremy Goldcorn. You Wunding the Tianshai. Greet the people there, Jeremy. Yeah, make Tennessee great again is my slogan. Uh, I hear it's a shithole. Fei Chang Wunding the. Fei Chang Wunding the Tianshai. But thank you for that introduction. I. You He's know. just the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Yeah. He really is. Your people. Anyway. The Associated Press has just been killing it with a series of fascinating and very worrying reporting on Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. Uh, it's called China's Uyghurs on Edge. Uh, since mid-December, Beijing-based reporter Jerry Shi has published four outstanding pieces reported not only in Xinjiang, but also in Turkey, uh, in Istanbul and Kayseri and the Syrian border area. Uh, Jerry joins us today from the AP offices in Beijing. Jerry Shi, welcome to Seneca. Thanks a lot, Kaiser and Jeremy. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, uh, finally we John. Uh, Jerry, you've actually been writing quite a bit on Xinjiang uh, long before this series actually started, including some reporting about Uyghurs uh, fighting in Syria in a piece that ran back in April. Uh, but give us a sense for the impetus behind this series of stories that you did uh, that ran, I guess, mainly in December. And Jerry, for for those of us, uh, for those of our listeners who haven't actually read the series, could you maybe summarize the four recent pieces, what they were about, and w- w- where they were reported from, and uh, when you did your reporting and all that. Uh, sure. So the, the four pieces, it, it, there was a couple of components. The first story that ran was actually the last one that was reported. It was out of Xinjiang. I, I made a trip in late October, early November to basically see what the security situation is like now on the ground. And the general thrust of the story is that policing levels and the methods have basically exceeded what we've seen basically anywhere else in the world in recent history. Yeah, And what that really feels like for the people living on the ground who sort of live in this kind of constant state of uncertainty and, and some would say fear um, in the name of, of counterterror. There were other stories that uh, were reported earlier this year. I, I made a trip to Turkey actually as far back as August to speak to um, some of the militants who had come back 
uh, from from Syria to get an idea of you know what it's like, um, you know who are these people, what, what drives them, um, and also to talk to some of the uh, Uyghur community leaders because there's a massive Uyghur uh, expatriate community there in Turkey, and just you know I think for the first time. Um, get a sense of what the conversation is like um, within the Uyghur community, because it's just something that we never get access to as reporters here um, inside mainland China, given the the, the conditions that, that we work under. So that would have been shortly after the fall of Raqqa then, uh, back in August. So I guess they, they'd all come back from the war then? Uh, yeah. So actually, the Islamic State and its kind of activities in Raqqa uh, were not actually the focus of my reporting. So the majority of the fighters that I had spoken to joined the Turkestan Islamic Party, which was based out of Idlib. Um, and so that battle is actually raging um, as we speak uh, this week. Uh, I, still, I see it's still going on. Okay, great. Um, but we'll, let's start with the stories that focus on Xinjiang itself. Uh, you're reporting, as you say, from Southern Xinjiang shows a security regime that's just more draconian than, as you say, nearly anything else that uh, that we've seen in the world, really. Certainly more than anything I recall reading about in recent years. Uh, let's let's talk about the extent of state coercion in Xinjiang and, and how it really seems to have accelerated under uh, Cheng Chenguo, who has been uh, the Communist Party secretary, uh, in other words, the most powerful official of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region since 2016. Uh, tell us about Chen, about his background, and especially about his work in Tibet, uh, and the, the grid policing system that he implemented there and what his approach has been in Xinjiang since taking the top party post there. Um, yeah, so Chen ascended to this position after uh, rolling out his uh, so-called grid policing style in Tibet, and, and by all accounts, you know, has been considered a, a successful manager of this Tibetan issue after uh, basically blanketing the streets with police. You know, the, the incidents of kind of self-immolations, um, that, at least the ones that we hear about, have gone down. You know, he came um, after a period of about five years in which the previous party secretary in in Xinjiang rolled out a lot of what what could be viewed as um, carrot initiatives to basically win over the hearts and minds of of Uyghurs. The, these were uh, sort of you know uh, money uh, rewards for intermarriage and things like that. That I think within the party were seen as a bit too soft on, on this issue. You know, um, Xinjiang of course was was rocked by. Uh, attacks in Urumqi, uh, there was the Quinming bus attack, and I think the, the the gist was that they needed kind of a hard man um, to come in to you know let, let's let's use the stick a bit more. And Chen Chenguo, by all accounts, have absolutely um, delivered on that. Can you give us a sense of exactly how heavy the police presence is in terms of the increased budget for security, the police density? Um, the the feeling when you walk around on the streets of say uh, Urumqi or Kashgar, Kashir or Ili or uh, uh, Khotan, um, how does it feel? How, how how are there numbers? How do we understand how invasive or pervasive the police presence is? And it's not it's not Xinjiang wide, right? I mean Urumqi is very different from Korla where you are or where you were, right? Uh, yeah, there's absolutely um, a spectrum here. But let me just try to give you a picture of what it's like to sort of, you know, be on the streets. I mean, it's so incredibly pervasive that it, it does feel like a, a kind of a constant state of war. So if you're walking down the street in a place like Hotan, um, maybe about once every two blocks, there will be a checkpoint where you have to get out of your car 
because somebody will come and look in the trunk. Somebody will come and look under the car. You have to uh, line up and uh, give your uh, ID uh, and possibly uh, submit to a, a check uh, of your s- smartphone. There are banners all over the streets. There are walking uh, patrols. And then once every few hours, there will also be these large um, cavalcades of, of you know more than 30 uh, maybe 40 armored vehicles, um, some filled with paramilitary troops. And on, you know, just basically all along the street is just everywhere you see billboards that say, you know, um, Comrade Xi Jinping is, uh, stands with you. Um, you know, you know, uh, let's all work together for ethnic unity. I mean, this stuff is, you know, in, in terms of sight, in terms of sound, it's, it's absolutely ubiquitous and it's sort of, Really is a is Jerry. Give me a sense of the ethnic composition of the actual patrols, for example, or of the actual cops, the people who are stopping you and searching your trunk and and asking you to produce ID. Are these Uyghurs or are they Han or is it indeterminate? There is an interesting um, composition here. I think almost all of the frontline um, sort of security. Uh, uh, workers, um, so the police that stop you, that check for ID, they're all Uyghurs. And then usually their superiors are Han. Interesting. And, and it's not really just police stations or checkpoints and security cameras, right? I mean, it's also this biometric stuff, including, I mean, your story is talking about taking DNA samples and doing very sophisticated facial recognition, too. Is, is that correct? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, for the last year or so, there have been reports that uh, that there has been widespread DNA collection. And I thought that maybe it would just be a portion of the population. When I arrived in Kashgar, um, actually it was, it was before that. I, I was in Hotan and I had, um, heard from some local officials, uh, about these, uh, what they described as services for the people. It's health checks. Um, it's, it's, and if you walk through the main bazaar in Hotan, there's actually a recording that's played on loudspeakers just over and over and over again, asking people to submit to these health checks for their own good. And then, you know, pretty quickly I, I realized that, um, you know, they did indeed take blood samples and that this was being done essentially region-wide. Oh, my God. Uh, Jerry, is it uh, all stick now and no more carrots at all? I mean, are there no more inducements towards assimilation and that sort of thing? Uh, and have they been at all successful in creating party loyalists among Uyghurs in Xinjiang? Um, yeah, I I think that you know the the, the carrots absolutely has continued. Um, I couldn't tell you the specifics of you know, for example, the the, the marriage incentives, but you know, I, I certainly do think that the party has tried um, very much uh, you know to alleviate rural poverty. Um, in Xinjiang, per- perhaps more so than 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 even the rest of China, and it has been a, a leading incentive. And I think if you talk to many of the officials, they sort of um, feel a bit frustrated. You know, why isn't there more attention that's being paid to all the things that we've done for the rural poor, for the elderly, and that you know the the, the economic development is the uh, first and the best uh, way to sort of assuage some of these sources of discontent among the Uyghurs. Yeah, um, that, that makes sense to me. Um, probably the most disturbing thing that you wrote about, though, are these detention or euphemistically vocational training centers, uh, like the one in Korla where you reported. Actually, I think there were more than just one. Uh, how close did you get to these? And what were people able to tell you about conditions inside them, about what actually goes on uh, inside the walls of these these detention centers? And and what, what does one have to do to, to find oneself behind such walls? 
Uh, they seem to be incredibly ubiquitous. I mean, you know, I tried to pin down the numbers of people that have been sent in. There's been reports that in some villages there have been even quotas. So let's say 20%, 30%, 40% of an entire village's population um, that needs to be sort of rotated in and out of these you know, re-education centers. Okay. You know, they seem to be pretty well known. You know, when I was traveling in, let's say, Korla, people basically seemed to know, you know, where they were. It wasn't much of a secret. You know, one of the centers that I visited essentially was just a, it was just like a kanchosu. I mean, it was basically just a detention center. It was basically a jail. You know, I have heard of others that sort of, you know, are more nondescript buildings. Um, we've gleaned from... Uh, the state media's own reports that these are essentially locked dormitories in which Uyghurs stay for months to sort of read over patriotic materials, uh, things that kind of teach them about all the things that the party has done for the Uyghurs, the signs that they should look out for um, amongst their friends and their relatives of possibly extremist thought, if anybody is talking to people overseas, if anybody is... is um, kept a, a beard for example you know these are all warning signs and jeremy you have a beard <laughs> yeah no no but I, I was gonna say it reminds me a little bit of um when i was in primary school in the apartheid era in south africa we were white school children were forced to go to a thing called felt school which means like bush school and we got lectures on things like the evils of blue jeans and how if you wore denim jeans you were kind of a communist but also maybe an uh, american satanist and uh it was only a week <laughs> it, it, and we were you know more or less voluntary <laughs> but it, it's sort of a, a similar kind of uh program of indoctrination i guess jerry do you have a sense of how many people uh have been sent to these things so in Korla, people told me that it was, you know, let's say about 4,000, possibly more. And if you were to kind of extrapolate that in every village, in all the other major cities, it could be tens of thousands. It could be possibly far more than that. Um, it's, it's really hard to say. But, and, and I think the, the biggest issue here is the lack of transparency. Um, I tried to capture in my story, which is this sense of, um, it's really kind of the sense of uncertainty that that's what's most devastating, I think, because, you know, a lot of times these people, these uh, Uyghurs, young and old, they, they range anywhere from essentially teenagers to older people in their 70s. They can be sort of asked to leave, taken away suddenly and without any sort of official court notices it's, it's it's an extrajudicial process right family members meanwhile who are outside don't have any sense of you know how long they're going to be inside and that number by the way we we sort of um estimate is anywhere between let's say two to three months to several years could be they don't know what the situation of the, their loved ones are and um, we found the instance of uh one family which I had uh, originally heard about from overseas sources um, that there was a young man in Korla. He was taken away back in February of uh, 2017. And when we arrived, uh, and we had heard that he had actually died under unknown and mysterious circumstances while in detention. And when we arrived at his mother's home in uh, November, um, she had actually had uh, no idea whether he was dead or alive, and, and she hadn't heard of anything. That was the very sad kicker to that piece, yeah. 
And uh, that does also mean that my comparison to my week in felt school in South Africa is completely ridiculous. But I think there are other meaningful comparisons that you can make. Well, the propaganda aspect, the sort of brainwashing aspect, I think is is a meaningful comparison. But I mean, this is much more akin to some kind of uh, gulag than it is to, you know, uh, what I was talking about. Uh, Right. This is, uh, you know, if people are sent away for, you know, possibly years and there's absolutely no sense of um why they're there and how long they'll be there that 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 is that that is a pretty extreme situation so so, so the interesting here uh, thing here is that actually this program as far as i can tell has been um going on going back several years but before uh, let's say two, three years ago, people would be invited to come in. They would sit for half a day and then at night go home and have dinner with their families, go to sleep. And then maybe they would do this for you know several weeks. How this rapidly ratcheted it up into this far more draconian and, and, and you know slightly uh, nightmarish kind of version, I can't pretend to know what was the thinking inside um, the local officials' minds, but you know it does reflect this broader... Um, phenomenon we're seeing, which is that all of these, all of these measures are just being ratcheted up so fast, and and, and the process seems to be accelerating. And, and is it local officials, or is this Chen Quanguo? I mean, Chen Quanguo's tenure there started in 2016, and it seems to maybe correspond to this ratcheting up that you're talking about. Anyway, I guess we we don't really know. Um, Jerry, though, is is your sense that that this separatism, the separatist sentiment that they're trying to eradicate, whether or not it's actually stiffened by global jihadism, uh, which is something that the Chinese state, you know, really wants to claim, uh, is this something they can break? Is this something they can stamp out? I mean, it, maybe it's just the American in me, but it just seems like they must, the Chinese official, must suspect in their heart of hearts that. Not only are they going to fail to eradicate it, but it's only going to deepen uh, the already quite bitter resentment that they have. Uh, I, I just I can't see how this works. I mean, Tibet is is a different case, maybe. Uh, what's your sense? Can this work? This issue is something that I is is basically the nut of the the the, the series of articles I wrote is exploring this idea of whether you know, some of these heavy-handed measures are exacerbating um, what has frankly been um, a decades-long separatist movement. I mean, the idea of the formation of a Uyghur state goes back, you know, practically a century. Right. This idea, you know, is so old, it's probably not going to ever go away. But when we are living in this kind of more interconnected world of the internet, when you have militant groups in the Middle East, in Central Asia, that are able to sort of use the measures that the Chinese government is, is deploying in Xinjiang as um, a selling point to, to, to win more recruits. I mean, that, that does raise the question of, is this only making things worse? Right. Uh, Jerry, um, can I go back to your first piece, which focuses on the security measures? Um, uh, you talked to a Uyghur who left China after 2009, uh, the riots in Oromochi uh, and the subsequent clampdown. Uh, he is currently in Washington, and he told you about the pressure his family back in Xinjiang has come under. What's more, he told you that he's been accosted by a Uyghur official over WhatsApp, of all things, and he was basically told that he has to cooperate. 
Is this something you're hearing a lot about, Beijing reaching beyond China's borders to try and control Uyghurs in the diaspora? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we do know that China is increasingly using its political, economic uh, influence to convince countries like Thailand or, or even Turkey to view the security situation as its, as its own issue, as, as a priority to help um, detain and, and deport uh, Uyghurs who have left China. And, and I guess, you know, in the last couple of years, I would say, we have seen these instances of officials directly reaching out to Uyghurs who have left the country. Uh, th this anecdote that, that I heard um, was particularly interesting because, you know, it, it almost seemed as if this official in the um, International Cooperation Department of the, of the regional PSB, I mean, he, he sort of almost wanted to, to flip the situation and say, hey, if, if you, this Uyghur scholar who had uh, fled China, if, if you um, refuse to come back, if you refuse to sort of submit yourself to our uh, questioning and improve your loyalty to the Chinese state, you can prove it to us by essentially spying for us. I mean, that was the subtext of what he was trying to say. You're, you're well-placed in Washington. Um, maybe we can turn this kind of disagreeable situation into something that benefits us both. It wasn't a veiled threat against his family? It was absolutely a veiled threat against his family. And, and yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's how I read it, yeah. But it was also, it was also an inducement, a, a, a proposal of uh, good treatment. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is the, the, the fundamental fear that a lot of Uyghurs abroad have is that, you know, because they have so much family back in, in Xinjiang, that, you know, that is always something that can be used as leverage against them. And so uh, there is this kind of self-enforced veil of silence, uh, mm. essentially, um, because um, any sort of contact that they might have with family members back in Xinjiang could lead the, 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 their relatives into trouble it's better for them to just not um, have any contact at all. And so they don't know. There's no way for them to say happy birthday. There's no way for them to find out if a relative has been led away to, to re-education. There's no way for them to even know what, what the status of their children is, how they're doing, whether they're healthy, whether they're sick. Um, it, it's, it's completely shut off. Right. There's that heartbreaking anecdote about him calling his daughter back and then fi finally, you know, summing up the, the courage to call her. And she picks up and just says, Mom's here. She doesn't want to talk to you and then hangs up. Right. Right. Uh, Jerry, you've, you've written about how even relatively mild critics of the government are now being cracked down on uh, with pretty harsh prison sentences being handed down. I, I think many of our listeners are going to be familiar uh, with the scholar Ilham Tukti, uh, who was at the Minzu Dasyue, but uh, few are going to know about this guy, Zhang Haitao, uh, who wasn't exactly a, a prominent activist, um, and he is himself actually Han. So tell us about Zhang Haitao, uh, what he did, and what he's alleged to have done, and, and how he was punished. Uh, yeah, so, so Zhang, he was a Han, I think he was maybe in his late 40s, you know, he's originally from Henan, and he's a low-level telecom salesman. Um, you know, he would go around selling wireless routers, things like that, in, in Urumqi, where he moved to, to, to seek kind of better job prospects, and then, you know, at night, he would log on to Twitter, which is, of course, blocked inside China, but he would log on to Twitter and sort of just mouth off, you know. Uh, the, the so he had a VPN, huh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. He had VPN. He he knew his he knew his internet, um, you know, technology. But 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 you know, he shot off maybe about. Um, uh, I think it was a total of more than two hundred tweets 
off into the digital ether. I mean, he didn't have a whole lot of followers. Uh, and I guess the contrast I wanted to make here is, you know, you had Ilam Toti, he was widely respected and, you know, you could argue almost internationally famous. Um, here we had a case of a guy who just basically had, I don't know, maybe a few hundred, if that, followers on Twitter. It wasn't really particularly kind of, you know, profound analysis of some of these, you know, ethnic policy issues. He was just mouthing off, you know, oh, you know, it's terrible what I'm seeing here. Uh, the Communist Party is a bunch of uh, thieves. This, I mean, it's almost a little bit kind of amateuristic, uh, kind of, you know, off-the-cuff remarks. And for this, he got a total of... It was of, like 11 years or something. Oh, like far that. more than that. Yeah, it was closer to oh, 20 oh. years, yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. I mean, is it your sense that there are Han Chinese... Uh, besides him, I mean, who are, are sympathetic with the way that Uyghurs have been treated, or does the indifference or, or even actually the hostility and the fear uh, that is quite, you know, frankly commonplace among Han Chinese that I know, um, so overpower the sympathy that functionally there's there's basically there's no support uh, for for Uyghurs uh, from the Han population at large, besides this poor guy, Zhang Haital. Uh, you guys probably have a good sense of this. I mean, so I, I actually am fascinated by this issue because, so I, I did a story earlier uh, in 2017 about this rising Islamophobia um, sure. in China. And I guess this kind of like Han nationalism, I, I think a lot of it is stems from, I guess, you know, which is what you see in the news uh, every day, uh, you know, is, is bombs going off in the Middle East and ISIS. And, and I think that seeps into the, the kind of the popular Chinese um, consciousness and on Weibo on Weixing, I mean, the level of kind of, you know, antipathy towards um, the Muslims in China is significant. There's been numerous, numerous and well-documented um, social media campaigns about, you know, why does CCTV and its New Year's broadcast, for example, um, not mention pork? Is it because they're afraid of offending Muslims? Why is it that Air China doesn't serve pork on on certain flights, you know, to, in and out of Xinjiang, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? I think that um, the level of sympathy towards the Uyghurs that you would see from somebody like Zhang Haitao is is certainly in the minority in China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we did a show actually with Alice Su, who did mm. a, a splendid report about that. We did a show with her, uh, and I would refer listeners to, to talk about rising Islamophobia and it's it's. Uh, it's a very, very big problem. I think it's it's definitely been exacerbated. I think uh, there's sort of the a permission that's been given for the same kind of politically incorrect behavior uh, in China that, that actually emanates from, from our country, from the U.S. Hey, Cynical listeners. I want to thank our sponsor, Casper Mattresses, really quick and let you know that we've got a terrific promotion for you to help you get a good night's sleep and save big bucks. Get a Casper mattress delivered to your door for free with their wonderful 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial return policy and save $50. All you need to do to save 50 bucks on a select Casper mattress is visit casper.com slash subchina and use the promo code subchina, S-U-P-C-H-I-N-A, at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Pleasant dreams. And now back to the show. And on a uh, slightly different topic, uh, Jerry, you were detained in Kola for 11 hours. So I, I have that in common with you. I, I was detained in Kola for four hours. Um, uh, can you tell us about your detention? 
Well, I mean, how was the how was the tea they offered you? You know, maybe we can you know, <laughs> it, compare notes. It wasn't uh, great. <laughs> uh, I was just yeah. asked to leave. <laughs> was... Um, uh, yeah. yeah we, can you we, tell we, us about that? We, um, I guess, in the course of reporting about this this young man, this young student who returned from Egypt, and we believed died during detention. So uh, we spoke to his mother briefly. Um, she initially sort of was extremely curious about what we knew about him and, and really wanted to know and then kind of soon realized that it just, um, what, the risks were too great to talk to foreign media. And so we, we left. And then I, I kept pushing inside of this village to ask other people sort of what they knew about him, his fate, what was he like? Uh, one of the people I spoke to essentially then snitched uh, <laughs> and and uh, took me to the local cops, who then took me back to Korla, and then that and you know sort of got drawn out into a very long period of detention. And they essentially told us that you know why do you foreign journalists always focus on on security measures? Um, you know why don't you ever write about the good things? You know sort of quite quite typical things. And then yeah, and, and there's basically a long period in which we were interrogated repeatedly about who where we had been who we had spoken to and and then what did they do jerry did they just run you out of town and force you to go back to urmachi what what was the uh, outcome of it oh uh, yeah in the end we we took a, a kind of a, a 5 30 a.m uh train to, to, to Urumqi, they saw us onto the train, and, and, and that's that. Bye-bye, Lenina. So let us shift now completely and talk about some of the reporting that you did from Turkey about the Uyghurs in exile, uh, the, the diaspora, and the struggle within the Uyghur community in Turkey over radicalization. Um, I, you know, this is fascinating. I, I, I don't think I've read anything about this uh, that has been reported uh, in the depth that you, you you've done um, the Uyghur community abroad, especially in Turkey, how did you find the people who'd fought in Syria, uh, and how did they regard you, an American obviously, but also you know clearly of Han Chinese ethnicity and based in Beijing? Sure, I, I guess it was incredibly striking. Two things, um, both of which you kind of touched on. One was the fact that when I arrived in Turkey, you know, I had a few contacts and then, you know, we basically met up with former fighters. You know, a lot of it was friends of friends. Uh, some of it was, you know, talking to community leaders who introduced us. It was really striking how many people had gone or how many people had known somebody who had gone. And, and it was almost casual. You know, you, uh, you know, you're sitting outside a kebab shop talking to somebody and he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I actually had, uh, you know, an uncle and, um, you know, two nephews, uh, a cousin who, 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 you know, went over there. It was always they went over wow. there um, to just check it out. You know, a lot of it, and and um, others were sort of you know far more angry. They had really wanted to 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 do this, but it was to me kind of uh, how should I say maybe an, almost an open secret. And and I was just shocked. I said, why hasn't this been, I guess, reported more previously? And and you know the only answers I could come up with were a. It is Turkey. Uh, most of the reporters who are covering the, the Uyghur issue are based in Beijing and, and Turkey is halfway across the world. 
And B, I, I, I think that, to be completely honest, there, there has been a lot of skepticism, as there should be, of the Chinese government's claims for many, many years that there is actually this phenomenon of thousands of, of Uyghurs joining militants in Syria. And, and I think that sort of the, the, the typical skepticism that non-Chinese academics and media have towards the, the Chinese government statements such as this um, probably slowed us down in terms of actually taking this seriously and looking into this. And uh, Jerry, I suppose that's why your reporting on this struck Kaiser and me so forcefully, because I, I do think, you know, you, you have done something that nobody's done before, which is look seriously at this with a uh, an un... Um, Unjaundiced eye. An unjaundiced yeah. eye. You've just gone and talked to people and found that this is a real thing without going there with the agenda of calling them terrorists. Um, yeah, so, so I guess, th- th- and this brings up an interesting point, which is I, I was wondering, you know, what the, 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 the Uyghur community there, what their response would be to, to somebody like me, as you say, a kind of, a, you know, an ethnic Chinese uh, American journalist showing up and talking to them about something, uh, you know, uncomfortable. And in many instances, they actually were happy. You know, some of these uh, Uyghur leaguers, some of these um, Uyghur intellectuals, they were thrilled that somebody was coming to look at this issue because this kind of debate, it has been more or less an open debate, but within a very cloistered community about, you know, that this is a scourge. This is something that we need to address head on. But And it doesn't help anybody if we don't, uh, you know, tackle this issue head on. Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that I thought was really interesting was that there is another participant in that in that conversation, and that's, of course, the Uyghur activist groups. And they've generally really tried to play down this idea that, that there's any kind of a connection between global jihadism and Uyghur separatism. They've kind of encouraged the academic community that you kind of have made reference to in, in that uh, almost denial of, of, of this. I, I have to imagine that, that the way the party leaders in, in Beijing or in even Urumqi have, have greeted your reporting has got to be pretty conflicted. I mean, they can't be happy about you reporting on the Orwellian policing, but then the pieces that you reported from Turkey, I have to think they're almost happy to see a reputable Western news source confirming that there's this separatist party, the very existence of which some Western experts have, have you know, questioned, is in, is in cahoots with real bad guys. So has the foreign ministry asked you to tea yet? Have you, have you talked to them about this yet? No, I haven't gotten any sort of official response. Um, I, I can, you know, somebody sent me this uh, article on WeChat. It was a Chinese military affairs blogger. They basically translated my some of my stories and wrote this extended blog post saying, "Okay, here is a you know international it's AP, it's an international media. They looked at this issue of Uyghur militancy and separatism through a very politically biased lens. However, uh, it confirms some of the things that the Chinese government has been saying, right? And right. so, and then that, uh, point, right? that was up there on the internet for about I don't know maybe forty eight hours max before it was censored." Uh, so, so I've, I actually have no idea, you know, what what the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, what what state security, what what you know the Defense Ministry thinks. My suspicion, for example, of why a, a, a blog post like that was, sorry, a, a Weibo post like that was was taken down, was that um, I, I'm not sure how much awareness there is in um, Xinjiang due to censorship. There is of the existence of these groups. Um, for instance, one of the fighters I had met from Hotan, he had no idea that there were these 
Uyghur separatists or militants or, or what the ETIM or what the TIP was until he one day saw on state media in a state newspaper about the death of one of its leaders. Um, uh. And then it sort of planted the seed in his head. Um, he sort of you know looked on the internet and started receiving information from apps, you know, WhatsApp, Voxer, Viber, Telegram. And that sort of, you know, was what kind of started him on this path towards radicalization. In my uh, reporting, I didn't find anybody who said, okay, you know, this is a mosque that's kind of like a, you know, a jihadi factory or, or this is kind of the network of recruiters. Um, you know, all of it was either they had... Uh, basically been recruited after they left China or they were kind of looped into this by the use of messaging apps, which could explain why a lot of these apps were starting to get shut down one by one during that period of, of 2013, I think 2014. And the real worry is what happens to them once they go home to China, right? Uh, yeah. They bring that training with them and that militancy. Uh, what's your, your expectation there? Do you think that... that uh, that China is in for, you know, really serious incidents of terrorism, uh, of major violent episodes. Or to put it in another way that I was about to ask before Kaiser said that, how f***ed is Xinjiang? Uh, yeah, it, it's it's kind of... Pretty well, f***ed. It's pretty f***ed. I mean, look, I, I, um, it's hard to see how this ends, I suppose, you know, whether this cycle is just going to keep getting worse or whether, you know, Chen Quanguo really is going to prevail after five years of just absolutely suffocating security. I mean, that's what the, you know, party central essentially banking on, right? I mean, if we can just kind of squeeze the life out of, out of, um, out of, uh, you know, any sort of resistance, then eventually, um, we'll have peace. But, you have thousands of these guys who are outside of the country now in places where where China can't reach. Um, they're plotting their next move. Um, some of these fighters said, uh, "Look, uh, you know, there's there's Obor, One Belt One Road. It has projects. Chinese, essentially, it's 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 Chinese projects with a, with a target painted on it, all over the world. Um, you know, China can't be everywhere. Its security can't be everywhere." Um, you know, so and, even the, if and these guys no, now have connections to jihadists with bombs and drones and skills. Yeah, th- there were reports that. Uh, do you guys remember um, the the embassy, Chinese embassy in Bishkek, was targeted by some yeah, of course, a, yeah. kind of a dud right. of, a, of a of a suicide attack. But um, the the Kyrgyz security forces uh, reportedly had said that the the, the 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 entire plot was financed by by Nusra. Um, I haven't looked into that. I can't confirm it independently, but um, for what it's worth, that, that that was what they said. So I want to find out more about who these Uyghurs are. Um, I mean, I know China claims that there have been Uyghurs training with the Taliban and working with al-Qaeda since you know, well before September 11th. Uh, and there, uh, the Uyghurs, though, that you've talked to who joined the fight against Bashar al-Assad, uh, they're much younger, obviously. Uh, but is, is are they sort of part of a continuous presence of Uyghurs uh, since the late 90s, maybe, uh, following on the wave of, of violence in southern Xinjiang in, what, 97, I guess that was? Or is this like a separate wave, maybe a post-2009 wave? And is there sort of a marked difference between these two, uh, maybe, generations of, of Uyghurs in the diaspora? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- I think that in the in the 1990s there had been um, maybe hundreds. I, I really don't know, you know, don't know the exact number of Uyghurs who uh-huh. had been embedded with the Taliban. You know, there was um, a, a Uyghur uh, militant leader who sat on the Al Qaeda Shura Council, a- a- and you can draw a straight line, you know, between some of those early Uyghur separatists that that kind of got bedded in with these international transnational jihadi groups to the thousands that we're seeing in Syria today. Um, hmm. the, the only difference is that I think, you know, yes, they some of those leaders relocated from uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan to Syria. But in the 90s, in the 2000s, they really were kind of a skeleton force. You know, they were pumping out uh, propaganda videos occasionally, but they were pretty emasculated. I mean, you know, going back into the to the 90s, you had Osama bin Laden um, saying that, you know, we shouldn't piss off China. Let's not um, back any sort of actions against um, this rising power whose mutual enemy is is with us is, is, is the United States. Also, Mullah Omar... Uh, I think, you know, according to the Taliban spokesperson's uh, memoirs, also personally guaranteed the Chinese that no attacks on China would be launched from Afghanistan. Uh, huh. And so you had this period of, let's say, you know, 10, 20 years where they had no followers. They had no substantial backers in, in, in the forms of, you know, Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Uh, and finally, this Syria war happens. It, it presents this opening. It coincides with thousands, maybe more than 10,000 Uyghurs leaving China. And suddenly it just presents, you know, in the wake of this massive uh, security crackdown in Xinjiang. And it's just right, kind so of it's a, like a push and a pull at the same time then, right? So there's there's the push element of, of China cracking down and this sort of pull element of, of uh, the, the, you know, maybe wanting to go to support the so-called caliphate, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a confluence. It's like a perfect storm of factors. I mean, for the first time, these guys who've been, you know, kind of helplessly just hanging out in, in, in Afghanistan, now they suddenly have this stage where, where they can call thousands of, of, of Uyghurs to, to, to their side and, and become an actual serious fighting force. And, and what is their reputation as a fighting force? Um, the Uyghurs have gone to Syria. Uh, have they been seen as effective? Uh, very much so. And, and this is one of the, the, the kind of the, the interesting things is my colleague, in Beirut, who had been covering the CNN war closely. And, and, you know, one day last year, he, he sends me an email and he's like, hey, you know, um, my sources in some of the the militias, they've been telling me that, you know, who are these guys from China who, who are really sort of making a splash on the battlefield? They've kind of really been unsettling Assad's, you know, the, the loyalist army with their with their suicide attacks. And, and some of them have been really kind of gung-ho, you know, charging into the front lines. And they're from China. I mean, they don't speak Arabic. What's the deal? Um, and then, you know, I had, of course, been following the story from China, but it was that moment was kind of when I was thinking, man, this is something that really should be should be taken a closer look at. Yeah, that's fascinating. Do you think, Jerry, that they are losing the, the moderate Uyghurs uh, in the diaspora? Are they losing the de-radicalization battle, as one of your sources lamented? Uh, yeah, that was the thrust of... Um, of kind of, you know, one of the stories that I wrote was, you know, in this period when you had groups like the Turkestan Islamic Party putting out slick propaganda videos on YouTube with emotional music and, you know, open season recruiting that's going on in Turkey, how do these, this older generation 
of the of the diaspora's leaders, um, you know, your World Ringer Congress, uh, who who advocate, you know, political dialogue, more autonomy, uh, uh, kind of uh, nonviolent uh, means. How do they still make sure that they get their voice heard? And I think that um, it was quite striking that the kind of the the, the 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 frustration that I would hear from people who were, in fact, kind of high level officials, you know, vice presidents of the of the WUC who said that, you know, we're afraid we're losing this younger generation of frustrated young men. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, there was one Uyghur man that you talked to in Istanbul uh, who says that it's happening just like it did in the 1980s. Uh, there were some Uyghurs who entered Afghanistan via the, the Wakhan corridor, that tiny little narrow corridor that attaches Afghanistan to um, to China and was kind of an artifact of, of the great game. Uh, and they joined up with the Mujahideen in the fight against Soviet occupation and then presumably later hooked up with the Taliban or with al-Qaeda. And uh, he says that this, I think if I'm paraphrasing him correctly, he, basically that it just gave Beijing a, a reason to crack down on the Uyghurs. Uh, and this is a guy who had spent 14 years in prison. Uh, so my sense from your story is that there's, you know, these these, these older guys are really, you know, they there's some wisdom in what they're saying that these these younger dudes who are are, are showing up and signing on with these Salafist groups and pursuing armed jihad, they're they're just gonna make things worse. Uh, and is that that a view that you share? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and, and you know, so th- this idea that you mention of this kind of fear amongst the community elders that this that that this phenomenon of their young men becoming radicalized is bad for the their international image and is only exacerbating the crackdown in Xinjiang um this is you hear this you know everywhere in fact there's actually a conspiracy theory that i've heard repeated several times among the Uyghur diaspora uh, that this entire phenomenon is actually a, a, a massive Chinese conspiracy. Um, that, yeah, I'm not surprised you know, they've... I, I personally that, don't yeah. buy, but, but you know the idea is that, oh, okay, well, why did China open its borders or, or at least not close its borders you know, for more than a year in 2012, 2013? And how did all these people end up in, in, in Syria? You know, they must have sort of you know, been with a wink and a nod from the, from the Chinese. That, I think there's not a lot of evidence to, to support that, but it does point to the level of frustration that some of these community leaders feel that this is so damaging to our cause that it must be a Chinese government conspiracy. <laughs> but uh, on the other side, Jerry, um, is China at all correct when it asserts, uh, when it asserts a connection between, or in some cases conflates, Uyghur independence activists and full-blown jihadists? I think that uh, China has consistently tied the two things and conflated the two things. But the point of one of my stories talking to some of these former fighters was to point out that at least in their minds, it's not the same thing. Many of them went motivated by anger towards China right. and uh, their support for um, Uyghur independence or greater autonomy. You know, a lot of these guys don't believe in a, a vision of of Islam a, a millennium ago. I don't, I don't think they believe in you know widespread Sharia law. It's a revenge, and, not holy war. Was I think right. I don't know if you wrote that was, uh, header, but one of your editors perhaps wrote it. Was they're seeking revenge? They're not actually engaged in a religious conflict. Right, right, and and um, yeah, and, and in fact, two fighters told me that 
they would actually be sort of debating this very issue often uh, amongst themselves. You know, some of these militant leaders, kind of the hardened fighters who had been fighting alongside Nusra or some of these other groups, they would say, look, it's our duty as Muslims to sort of wage this war against Assad and to, to stick with this fight. And then some of the newer guys who came in would say, well, look, all we want is to just get revenge against China. We have, it's not about a holy war. It's not about jihad. When are we going to go back and attack China? And so that there was that very much that sort of, you know, source of tension within, within the, 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 the groups itself. I wanted to ask you one more thing. So much of what we read about Xinjiang in the English press, uh, you know, your reporting aside and stuff that your colleagues at AP have done. I mean, I've seen some great stuff back, you know, Jillian Wong a few years ago did a really great piece out there. But a lot of it comes from RFA or from Uyghur activist groups. What, what's a good way for us to approach those claims? I mean, it's it's very hard for me to tell uh, what's being enforced in one city or town and what the whole you know region might be doing. It, it, I can't I can't get a good sense of how well sourced these stories are. Um, what, what's your approach to news outlets like RFA? In my personal experience, a lot of times I have personally confirmed. Um, the reports uh, that RFA has put out, I think that as a, you know, it's, um, how should I put it? I think that RFA, um, I don't doubt the accuracy um, of the reporting. Um, I think that, okay. yeah, I, I, I don't think that, you know, it's fake news. Um, it, let's put it that way. Um, is Are they reporting the most sort of kind of heinous or shocking aspects of what's happening in a certain place sure but i mean you know i guess media in many cases do that i mean it's 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 um it's i i don't think that they i i I wouldn't question their sort of um journalistic ethics great 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 jerry i want to thank you so much for taking the time and this is an absolutely fascinating series and uh my money's actually on you for a pulitzer for this (laughs) yeah right no i mean it's it's an excellent series Uh, it was really Quite, quite groundbreaking. Uh, so stick around. Let's make a recommendation or two. Uh, before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina. Sign up for our free email newsletter and buy our terrific red paper on the important China news in 2017. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter where our handle is SupChina News. And if you like the Seneca Podcast, by all means, please go and leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store. It does mean a lot to us and helps other people to discover the podcast. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. I'm going to be a little boring today and recommend something that I have recommended before and something to do with somebody who's actually been a guest on our show before. And I know you, as an American red-blooded male, scoff at my sort of um, Commonwealth bird-watching activities, but I would like to recommend birdingbeijing.com, a great site if you're interested in birds in China. Um, and one that has been tracking uh, some really interesting projects. Uh, They're now in the second year of tracking cuckoos who migrate from Beijing to Africa, some of them reaching all the way to Southern Africa, Namibia, and and my home country of South Africa. So Yeah, we've done a whole show on that. We have, yeah. yeah. Um, But it's just, uh, there's been some interesting stuff on birding Beijing uh, recently. So that is my recommendation. And on with you. Great. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry, you're up next. What do you have for us? Uh, sure, I would recommend um, anybody who's interested in the subject and um, you know China and its history with um, 
uh, I guess, you know, Islamic uh, militancy to, to read um, The China-Pakistan Axis. It's a book by Andrew Small. He's a, he's a researcher at the German Marshall Fund of the United States in Washington. Um, and this book explores sort of China's security concerns, China's history with um, Pakistan. And a large component of this, of course, is ch- kind of China's competition with India. The other part of it is, um, yeah, I guess, you know, the entire Uyghur issue and, and some of the history. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Andrew is, um, you know, he knows this stuff inside out. Um, yeah, read this book, especially with Belt and Road. It's such like a big issue now in the news and the China-Pakistan relationship. Um, I, I, to me, it's a must read. Yeah, uh, that sounds great. I'm definitely going to do that. Thanks, Jerry. Fantastic. Uh, I am going to recommend a noble, very bold, but I fear ultimately doomed endeavor of a website called kialo.com, K-I-A-L-O.com. It's a place for online debate that's supposed to help people on opposite sides of issues, the big weighty issues, frivolous ones too, you know, ones about movies and things like that. But really, mainly it's it's big political issues or social or, or ethical issues uh, to, to be able to debate more constructively. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. We're wonderfully earnest and naive about it. You're so cute, Kaiser. I know, You're such a I sweetheart. <laughs> well, so, so how it works is you click Kumbaya. on... There's hundreds of issues, I know. We'll all hold hands and sing. Uh, there, it's it's org- organized around these assertions, uh, and there's this kind of tree of arguments, pro and con, and and each is kind of on a little card, uh, and then it has sub arguments debating its merits in the same way. And so you're limited in the number of words that you can write on on, on to each of them. It's 500 words, so it, it really kind of urges you to be more succinct, um, to be terse. And the community votes on the cards with the more compelling arguments, so that when you actually look at it, uh, you, you you see you see the arguments that have sort of floated up to the top that are the more compelling ones, uh, pro and con for a particular uh, claim. Um, the problem, okay, so I mean, there's no ad hominem attack. There's there's a kind of insistence on this kind of logic and evidence based style of argumentation, uh, and the problem, of course, is that anyone who who comes so far as to accepting these ground rules is just not the kind of person that we have a problem with today. Instead, you know, the people we have a problem with um, are the people who are like on the other side of this freaking epistemic divide from us who who reject the whole idea of truth. You know, the post-truth people, or or of expertise, or or of, or of logical argument. Or, anyway, I got to applaud the effort, Jeremy. You can laugh at me all you want, but I do encourage you to check it out. I was a member of a similar community before called Parlio. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I know. Very worthy. Very worthy. <laughs> you can laugh at me. All <laughs> but I like to. I'm applauding you, Kaiser. Can't you hear? I know. I know. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry. Thank you. Yeah, thank Very you, Jerry. Sure. That's fantastic. I mean, really, Thanks, what a guys. what a great series. Such an informative yeah, look at something that I I really think has not got enough attention in a serious way, and you've you've put a spotlight on it, which I think is is extremely valuable. In in a, a such a a, a a laudably dispassionate um, way, context dispassionate, but yeah, I mean, bringing in ample context and 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 shading it in all properly. Uh, so. Congrats. Well, yeah, I mean, you guys, yeah, it's uh, it's the highest praise coming from, from you two. So thanks a lot. It's, it's flattering, yeah. Okay, we'll see you soon, Jeremy. Uh, I'm going to take it out. Let's hope the flattery gets us everywhere. 
The Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldhorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SupChina News and follow us on Twitter at, at SupChina News. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care.